a real joy to be with you, and it's a privilege to open God's Word anywhere, but especially here. Carrie and I are enthusiastic supporters of ARC. Uh, our family has prayed for the work here, and how great it is finally to observe what's happening here. We love this church not only because there are several of you in this congregation who go way back with us personally. There are brothers here who showed me how to be a Christian, who uh, taught me how to pray, who showed me what it means to be a Christian husband and father. Um, I'm so grateful for that. But in addition to those things, we share the vision of ARC. We're so excited about the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ taking root in new pockets of this city from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe. So may the Lord bring to fruition your good purposes in what you have set out to do here. We are from one of those corners of the globe that is far flung, as Thabiti was just describing. The United Arab Emirates is a place I didn't know where it was 12 years ago, and now we've lived there for the last 10 years. It's uh, bordering Saudi Arabia and Oman. It's on the Persian Gulf. It's in a hot spot geopolitically. It's um, 70 miles across the water from Iran. And the indigenous people there, the Emiratis, are unreached with the gospel. The Gulf Arab people have not been reached for Jesus Christ. And around the, the Gulf citizens are all of these foreigners from, I think, some 200 nations who have assembled in Dubai in order to build the city. So it's a Muslim country. Sharia law applies there. Uh, ISIS would love to get a foothold there. And thankfully, the, the rulers there are doing all that they can to, to provide for stability and safety there. Your pastor, Thabiti, has preached in Dubai on a number of occasions over the last 10 years. He's brought enormous encouragement to us as a church. In addition to these Muslim-Christian dialogues that maybe you've heard about, they've taken place over the last 10 years, Thabiti has engaged a Muslim scholar in a public forum uh, on a number of different occasions, and the result has been a hugely significant opportunity for advancing gospel conversations between Christians and the Emirati people there. He has demonstrated courage and boldness in that setting. And for all of those reasons, I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here with you. So let's begin this morning with prayer, and then we'll dive into the scriptures. Lord, we know that the time is short. Lord, we know that the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Father, we pray that you would teach us to number our days rightly, that you would impress upon our hearts the eminence of the return of Christ, and that you would motivate us to live in such a way as to make the most of the opportunities you give us. Lord, grant that on the day that he parts the skies and comes back in glory, as we were just singing, that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we pray that even through our meditations this morning together, even through the singing of our final song and through conversations afterward, that you would be knitting our hearts together and strengthening us for the journey. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning, if you grew up going to church, is a famous one. It's, thou shalt not covet. But there's one big problem. That's exactly what advertisers want to produce in you. They want to produce in you covetous desires. In fact, one of them said, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's things unless thy neighbor hath a Gucci bag. 
And then it's okay because we're told that Gucci bags are undeniably desirable. And that's what advertisers want to produce in you. A covetous craving for something. It's the goal of marketers to link up your desires with what they have to offer. And so that you pursue those desires, you pursue the outlet that they provide and find satisfaction. Or better yet, what advertisers want to do is produce new desires in you that you haven't yet experienced. That's actually the cutting edge of advertising these days. So Apple's Steve Jobs was famous for saying, people don't know what they want unless you show it to them. Or like Henry Ford before him, he said, if I had asked the people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. I think some of the most perceptive people in our society today are advertisers because they get inside your head, don't they? They are at great pains to determine what you want so bad that you'll part with your money for it. All they do is calculated to appeal to your desires. So I wonder what you think about that. What does the Bible say about desire? If you have a Bible, let's open up to Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. Exodus is the, the second book in the Bible. And if you open to chapter 20 and look down at verse 17, you will see our text. It's page 61 in the Bible that some of you were given. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So this is the 10th commandment. I don't know about you, but I grew up going to church. And what I got from that church was that the 10 commandments were basically a checklist for how you become a Christian. So if you do these things, then you will be acceptable in God's sight. But I was sadly misinformed on that point. And we can figure that out just from looking at the context of this passage. Just look up at verse 2, and remember the situation of these people. God spoke all these words, saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, God had already saved these people from bondage. The Israelites now received this law on Mount Sinai, these Ten Commandments, not so that they might be redeemed, but because they already were redeemed. God had specially chosen these people and he had consecrated them to be his treasured possession. They were his royal priesthood. And these laws that God then gave them would distinguish them from all the other countries, all the other tribes and peoples of the world. And God capped it off in these 10 commandments by aiming straight for where? Straight for the heart. You shall not covet. That means you shall not even desire your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or anything. So let's ask three questions about covenant 
this morning. Three questions. Number one, what is it? Number two, what's so bad about it? And then number three, how do we defeat it? First, what is coveting? Secondly, why is it so bad? And then thirdly, how do we defeat it? So first, what exactly is coveting? Well, it focuses not so much on what you do as on what you want to do. You see, sin begins with the hands. No, it begins with the heart. And what you desire in your heart manifests itself in what you do with your hands. And this is what Jesus has been saying all along in the New Testament as he has commented on various of the Ten Commandments. Do you remember the teaching of Jesus about lust? If you merely lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. If you merely hate someone, you've committed murder in your heart. So this last commandment just makes explicit what has been implicit all along. That these Ten Commandments, all of them aim straight for the heart. So what is this forbidding? It's, a, it's forbidding a hankering after something. A yearning for something that you don't have. And friends, this can take place in one of two ways. Either one, you want something that is wrong to possess, or two, you want something so badly that it begins to control you and it takes away your contentment in God. Remember, desire in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? Coveting is not the same thing as desire. Many of our desires are good and God-given things, right? The desire for food is good. The desire for sex, the desire for children, the desire for significance, and I could go on and on with, with holy sanctioned desires that God has given us, but coveting happens in two ways. First, you want something that's wrong to possess, like your neighbor's wife. That's adultery. See commandment number seven. Or, secondly, you want something, maybe it's a good thing, but you want it so badly that it begins to take control of your heart such that it saps your contentment in God. It becomes your functional God. That's idolatry. See commandment number two. Either way, coveting is an insatiable desire of getting the world, and it's constantly prowling and patrolling. Friends, our hearts are factories of new desires. Put one to death, and then the next month, another one pops up. Notice how sweeping is this command not to covet. One thing I found really helpful in thinking through the Ten Commandments is going to a place like the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a series of questions and answers uh, formulated by the Reformers in the 1500s in Europe. Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism says. Question, what does the Tenth Commandment require of us? Answer that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, we should always hate all sin with all our hearts and delight in all righteousness. Is there anyone here today? Is there anyone in this room who has not broken the 10th commandment. 
How does this commandment play out in real life? Well, it goes kind of like this. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. And so you walk in to your neighbor's place and you think to yourself, wow, did you see those carpets and that furniture? Man, I wish I could decorate my house like that. I wish I could live in a, a spacious home like this. I live in a dump of a flat in a bad part of town, but she, whoa, it's humiliating where I live. The walls, the decor, life must be pretty nice living in a house like that. Or try this. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You, you interact with another woman. And without saying this, it just pops into your mind instantaneously. You think, why did I marry my wife? She's so much more friendly and attractive and her kids are so well behaved and her place is immaculate. Why couldn't my wife look like that? Man, if I had her as my wife, I'd sure be happy. Or how about this? You shall not covet your neighbor's manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey. You think, it's not fair. All those other families get to take all these nice vacations. They go to the Maryland shore every summer in their nice SUV. Me, I'm, I'm having another staycation here in Washington, D.C. Maybe get to go visit my grandmother. I ought to be t able to take vacations like everybody else. Or how about this one? You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. So again, without actually speaking this, you, you think in your mind, I just wish I had his ability. Then I'd be happy. If I could only find somebody to marry, then it would make all the difference to the difficulties I'm having now. If people would only recognize my contribution to the team, then I'd get the the recognition and, and the respect that I deserve, then things would be better. If only I had a different body type, then more people would like me. Then I'd be content. One of the great things about living in Dubai is that we get to experience these amazing vacations. You know, it's easy from there to go south to Africa or into Asia or nip over to Europe. And uh, I'll never forget that one holiday when we were all in southern France at this palatial luxury apartment in Monaco. It wasn't ours, it was a friend's of ours. And we were standing there on the balcony overlooking the glistening Mediterranean Sea. It was one of those idyllic moments where we were just taking in the beauty of it. And my wife was right beside me and I leaned over to her, to her and I said, you know, I should have a place like this. What is it for you? What is that one thing that, if you could just get that, you would find deep satisfaction? You'd find in that thing the significance that you've wanted for so long. Coveting is desiring something that's wrong for you to have or desiring something that's maybe right in and of itself, but you desire it so much that it becomes your functional God. That it takes away your contentment in God. That's what coveting is. But it kind of raises a second question. The second question is this, why is coveting so bad? Coveting is so bad 
because of what it says about God. I really want you to get this. Coveting says one of two things about God. One, God is not good. Or two, God is not enough. First, it says God is not good. After all, who is it who gave you your brain and your job and your car and your spouse? Well, God did. And you want another spouse? Or another car? Or another job? Friends, when we grumble at these things, what we're saying is that his plan isn't wise enough. It's not generous enough, is it? We kind of deserve more. We deserve better friends, better income, better status in society. We deserve better clothing. We deserve a better spouse. But don't you realize that God is the one who determined each one of these things in your life? Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Or, think about this. Think about Acts 17 verse 26. Love this verse. He decided the times set for you and the exact places where you should live. He determined your address. And will you complain about your housing options? And the car that you drive to work or your job? How unlike the Apostle Paul are we when we do these things? You remember Paul. He said, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. If you often complain about your housing and your job and family and your church, you're breaking the 10th commandment. What you're saying by that is, he's not really good. He's not really providing for me. And so you worry and grumble and you even begin to deceive people to get what it is that you really want. God is not good. Or secondly, God is not enough. Oh, God is fine so far as it goes, but he needs a supplement. He's not quite good enough for me. I need something more than that. Something outside his plan in order to have real satisfaction. And of course, it never works like that. How many people have ruined themselves at the feet of seeking a supplement to what God has planned for you? Jeremiah said, My people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. So this is God speaking through the prophet, and he's he's describing his people who had access to an ever-replenishing stream of water and satisfaction, but they chose to drink from muddy, scummy cisterns of this world. And they found it to be not what it was all cracked up to be. It amounts to idolatry. Putting anything other than God in the highest place is idolatry. That's what the New Testament calls coveting. Let me show you that. Keep your finger in Exodus and turn ahead to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5. 
verse 5. Ephesians 5.5. 5. That's on page 978. 978 of the Bibles that were handed out. Ephesians 5, verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Brothers and sisters, coveting is so bad because of what it says about God. He's not enough. And so coveting belittles God. What it does, it, it reduces God to the size of an Apple watch. Or whatever is the thing that you're coveting and craving. You tried God, but you found him wanting. And so now you need the device or the watch. And in that desire, you're attracting the wrath of God if you will not repent. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 5, verse 6. God's wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience. His wrath means his, his holy and just anger on sin. And friend, it doesn't matter if you think that you're a Christian, if your life is characterized this way. I used to think that I was a Christian. I attended church on a regular basis. If you had asked me, I would have said, sure, I'm a Christian. But my life was completely out of step with what that meant. Well, you know, Jesus described somebody just like that. He described a farmer who sowed seed which sprang up and it appeared to be the best of the crop. It appeared to be living and fruitful for a while. But what happened? Well, it became choked amid the thorns. Jesus said it was choked by the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And listen to this. Desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful and fit only for destruction. If this is what characterizes your life, then according to the Bible, coveting will land you in hell. You'll be condemned eternally because of what we're talking about today. Jesus called hell outer darkness. It's a place of God's wrath where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you will deserve to be there if you don't repent because you have offended an infinitely worthy being. One who deserves complete allegiance and more satisfying than all the things of this world. You have belittled him. You've besmirched his glory. Like somebody made in his image who's shaking your fist at God saying, you're not good or you're not enough. Way back in the fourth century, there was somebody named Augustine. Augustine and his friends one day stole some pears from a neighboring pear tree. And they weren't particularly good pears. The boys just stole them to have fun. I mean, they weren't even particularly hungry. Afterwards, they just threw these pears to the pigs. So why is it that they stole the pears in the first place? Well, Augustine discloses why in his confessions. 
He says, They were nice pairs, but it was not the pairs my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better pairs at home. I picked them simply to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity. The pairs were desirable simply because they were forbidden. You see, there was something in his heart that desired the forbiddenness of those pears. He didn't even care what the pears tasted like. That's the foolishness of sin. Coveting will ruin you eternally. And it will make a mess of your life now. I mean, just consider the painful consequences that attend coveting. Think of David in the Old Testament. You remember David's covetousness. He coveted another man's wife, Bathsheba. He saw her one day. She was sunbathing on her roof, and he, he lusted, and he plotted, and he planned, and then he took her by theft, thus violating the eighth commandment. And then he had a child by her, violating the seventh. And then in order to get himself out of trouble, he strategized to knock off her husband, violating the sixth. And it all began where? It all began in the mind. It began in the heart. You never know where your coveting will lead you. Coveting is this ravenous desire for more. More investments. Better car. Newer designer clothes. It's the folly that Ecclesiastes tells us about. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. There must be something more. So that's what's so bad about coveting. It testifies that God is not good. Or if you concede his goodness, still he's not enough. And then it goes ruins, ruins people's lives and sends people to hell. It's like the Puritan Thomas Watson said, a covetous man is like a bee that gets into a barrel of honey and there drowns itself. As a ferryman takes in so many passengers to increase his fare that he sinks his boat. Maybe the most important question to ask is this. Are you covetous? Have you tested yourself on that recently? Let me give you five clues that you may be afflicted with covetousness. I get these from Thomas Watson. Five clues that you may be afflicted with this disease. Clue number one, your thoughts are mainly taken up with this world. I mean your mental energy, it's set on things below, on your hobbies, on your job, on your things, but never on heavenly contemplation. Hardly ever are your thoughts taken up with God and Christ. No, your thoughts are here below. That's one clue that you may be coveting. Number two, you invest much more energy in getting earth than in getting heaven. So not your thoughts, now down into your energy and your work. Oh, you'll spare no effort in progressing up the corporate ladder. No, you'll do anything you can to perform well in school or getting in the right societies or 
progressing in the eyes of others, but you can't be bothered to carefully read your Bible or to serve God's people by coming early and helping out here. Clue number three. All your conversation. It's about earthly things. It's about the latest sporting news or office politics. But it's never about Christ or salvation or heaven. Your conversation's about things below. Number four. Clue number four is you're simply overloaded with busyness. Watson spoke of many irons in the fire, little time to eat your meals, no time to pray. And number five. Clue number five is simply you spend more money than you have. Coveting is a dead-end street. Jesus warned us. Remember what he said to the rich fool? Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Who is here this morning who has not violated the Tenth Commandment? Well, it only remains to us then to ask this question. How do we defeat it? Right? How do we escape this treadmill of trouble? This disappointment? How do we defeat coveting? Well, Buddhists have an answer. Do you know any Buddhists here in Anacostia? Buddhists say you defeat coveting by blowing out desire altogether. By extinguishing it. Their answer is don't desire anything at all. Desire is the problem, they say. Because it always disappoints us in a fallen world. And so the enlightened Buddhist is detached from the world. He's altogether separate, no longer allured by anything here. But you know the Bible answers very differently than Buddhism? The Bible says, find contentment in God. And be freed from your covetous craving. But the question is how? I mean, I know my own heart. I have some estimation of your heart. With all of the needs represented in this room, with all of the unmet desires and the daily disappointments and the uncontrollable fears, what do we do? Paul shows us how. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Right after Ephesians, we have the book of Philippians chapter 4. It's on page 982. 982, Philippians 4. Verse 11. Here's the key, brothers and sisters. 4 verse 11, halfway through the verse. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What really gets me every time I read those verses is that he wrote this letter from a jail cell. So what was the secret to Paul's contentment? Well, it's in the next verse. 
Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it was Christ who was the source of Paul's hope in any and every circumstance. That's the same thing we read in Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. If Paul had Christ in that jail cell, Paul had everything he needed. Even incarcerated in prison. He'd been in prison a number of times. Years earlier, he and Silas were imprisoned in Philippi. They were charged with disorderly conduct. They had been preaching and creating civil unrest in the ways that people were responding to their message. And so they were arrested and stripped and severely flogged and then incarcerated. They found themselves chained in the inner cell with their feet fastened in the stocks at midnight. And do you know what they were doing? Moaning and complaining about God's providence in leading them there? No. We read this in the book of Acts. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Paul had learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. Friend, do you want unshakable security and endless satisfaction? Then look to Christ. Store your hopes and your treasures, not here below in the Apple Watch or getting into the right university or climbing the corporate ladder. Store your hopes in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus, you'll find, is the fountain of unimaginably satisfying wealth. What the human heart craves most is not gold, but God. And Christ has brought us very near to God. You see, by his death on the cross, Jesus demolished the barrier that separated you and me by nature. See, we were made in God's image and we were designed to be thrilled by a relationship with the living God. But there's an infinite chasm between you and me and God because we have turned away from his plan. Like sheep, we've gone astray and we have belittled God and brought dishonor upon his name and God is angry because he's just. But the good news is God sent his son as a rescuer. And when he died on the cross, God diverted his wrath from you and me onto Jesus on the cross. And the sweet exchange is that Jesus bore the wrath for all of his people so that you and I, as we turn and trust in him, could receive the righteousness of Christ. And so call upon God and go to him as little children. Jesus is the fullness of deity in bodily form. So look to him, surrendering infinite privilege and coming down and bearing the wrath of God, dying and being buried and then raised from the dead, and find in him your treasure. Then, and only then, will you learn, as Paul said, godliness with contentment is great gain. No longer then will you be chained 
to the paltry substitutes of this world. You can be like Moses. You know, Moses grew up in a king's court. He grew up in a palace with all the privileges that you can possibly imagine. But we read this. He refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Why is that? Because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses received an inheritance that could never be taken away. And it made all the difference in his day-to-day life. J.I. Packer brings this home to us when he says, the discontented man whose inner itch makes him self-absorbed sees other people as tools to use in order to feed his greed. But the contented man is free, as others are not, to concentrate on treating his neighbor right. Do you want to treat your neighbor right? You must be content in God. Otherwise, you'll want something from your neighbor, either his money or his respect or his esteem or something. The opposite of coveting is contentment. Flee from coveting by finding contentment in Christ. As the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven besides you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Brothers and sisters, after 10 years of living in Dubai, if there's one thing I've learned, it's this. That it doesn't matter what continent you come from. We've got people in our church from 60 different nations. It doesn't matter what shade of color your skin is. We were built as pleasure seekers. We were built to seek something and to find a thrill, whether in a relationship or the enjoyment of God's creation Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. But the problem is, we seek that satisfaction in the things of this world first, and only then do we give the remainder of our time to God. He gets the leftovers of our energy, of our affection. First, our studies. First, our progress in the workplace. First, our social media. First, our hobbies then God. And so he is belittled. He is insulted. It's kind of like that rich young man that we read about in Mark chapter 10. This is the man who came to Jesus very confidently. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus is walking through the Ten Commandments, but he omits one of them. And someone who is familiar with the Ten Commandments would know which one was omitted. No reference to coveting. He said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, this rich young man wouldn't part with his wealth. Other people won't part with their comforts, or they won't part with 
the esteem and reputation they're building in the workplace. Still others won't part with their non-Christian boyfriends or their social standing or their carefully cultivated ambitions. I wonder what it is for you. What is that one thing that you simply refuse to part with to call Jesus your Lord? What's holding you back from following him with total joyful abandon? Is it desire that's so bad or misplaced desire? I mentioned earlier how Buddhists approach these questions. They try to extinguish desire. They think desire is part and parcel of the problem. Several years ago, I was here in Washington. I, I worked on Capitol Hill, and I had occasion to meet the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is the leader of Tibetan Buddhism. He was a very charismatic fellow, very likable. Seemed very serene and self-possessed. He had, if anyone had, he had learned the secret of being fairly detached, unruffled by the things of this world. Is that the path to the good life? To just extinguish your desire for everything? It's not what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Jesus invites us to enjoy him as the all-satisfying object of our desire. It's like he said to that rich man, go sell everything you have, as in none of that matters. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Set your desire on him. If you have Christ, why would you covet anything less? Why waste yourself on low-yield, two-bit substitutes, the short-term pleasures of this world when infinite joy is on offer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would we do that? Well, here's why. According to C.S. Lewis again, he said it's because we're half-hearted creatures. We're fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so friends, as we conclude, two questions for you to reflect on. First, what are you desiring most today? What are you desiring most today? And second, what would it look like for the Anacostia River Church to desire Christ and to pursue him above all things? Let's pray. Lord, we confess that in our moments of honesty, we recognize that we are, each one of us, indicted, convicted by this 10th commandment. 
Lord, help us to run to Christ to find solace. Help us to see in him the only solution to our covetous craving. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see that he is the only object which can finally satisfy. Lord, we pray that you would inflame our hearts with affections for him as we see him more clearly. Lord, help us do this even in our closing song. In Jesus' name, amen.